Hello and welcome to episode number 10 of Earth Repair Radio. Starting to think like a whole ecosystem. We're starting to think like like a, like an epoch rather than just like an individual person. Uh, that changes how you think about things. And I think what we're looking at is a scenario in the future where if we want to have pawpaws, we need to be thinking along these ecosynthesis lines, right? We need to, and in fact, we can actually be an active entity in moving these plants to where they're going to thrive in the future. Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today we've got a really great guest. We've got Dave Bainline. Dave is the principal and co-founder of Terra Phoenix Design, a permaculture design firm where he's done design work all over the world. He started his permaculture journey as the educational director at the Bullock Brothers Homestead in Orcas Island, Washington, and recently he wrote a book, co-wrote a book called Practical Permaculture, which is a really excellent entry-level permaculture design text. Um, I've learned a lot from Dave over the years, especially about the topic of choice today, which is climate analogs and designing for climate change. So enjoy the interview with Dave Bainline. Hey, Dave, how's it going? Doing all right. Good. How are you? I'm doing really great. It's I'm really happy to uh, talk to you today. Thanks so much for taking the time talk to me and all these people out here who want to hear all the great things you have to say. Right on. Good way to beat the heat. Yeah. Yeah, we're here in the beginning of August, you know, practically record heat up in the Pacific Northwest and all these forest fires burning up in British Columbia and all the smoke coming down. So uh, that's something that uh, it's a, a, a rel- very relevant weather systems happening right now for s- the topics I hope to cover with you today. Uh, but to start out, why don't you just tell everybody what have you what have you been up to lately that's interesting? Oh boy, lately, um, I guess we just finished a permaculture design course out at the Bullocks Permaculture Homestead on Orcas Island, and uh, you, you well know that every time you run one of those, that keeps you plenty busy. Um, and we have our, our advanced permaculture design course coming up. Uh, here in August, a little bit later, a couple weeks from now. So that also is keeping me busy. But I suppose, aside from that, the big item that's been on the radar is I've been spending quite a bit of my time lately uh, sort of exploring the patterns of success and failure for eco-villages hmm. Eco-village all over the United States. Uh, really curious to see what makes them tick, what makes for success, and uh, exploring the, the idea that I might be interested in in launching some sort of project in that vein. So that has been keeping me plenty busy. Pretty much all my free time is researching and visiting different places and, and checking that thing, that kind of thing out. Nice. What's your, what's your top place that you've visited that you really like? Oh man. It's a, uh, it's a bit of a tie. Um, Occidental arts and ecology center is pretty awesome. They are, uh, very similar to something I'd like to do someday, uh, where they have sort of an education center component blended with a residential component. Yeah. So that, that one was pretty appealing. And then uh, we visited Eco Village Ithaca recently out in mm. Ithaca, New York. And that was also a really impressive project to see uh, how they assembled it. And, you know, how, how, do you, how do you put it together on paper? How do you make it work? And uh, to see people who are actually enjoying living there. So Nice. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, I haven't been to either of those places, but they both, um, I've heard really good things about both of them. So, yeah, the thing I really wanted to talk to you about today that's been interesting to me that I've been doing a lot of research for uh, uh, my uh, online advanced course that I'm redeveloping uh, are something called climate analogs. And this is a term that I actually first heard of from you. Um, some years ago. And so I figured if I wanted to learn more about climate analogs, I would go right to the source. I've also seen some of your design work with your design firm, uh, Terra Phoenix, and you guys really incorporate climate analogs into your uh, design of um, people's uh, master planning properties. So would you tell me what is a climate analog and how does one find such a thing yeah sure so 
the idea behind analog climates is that we can look at our own climate and sort of develop a, a climate profile, if you will. If we can get a pretty good understanding of what our average precipitation is, our average temperature ranges, and the seasonality of those things. So in other words, is it really wet when it's hot or is it does most of the precipitation come when it's cold or that sort of thing? If we can sort out those three pieces for our location, then we can start to look for other places around the world that match those same parameters. And we can try and hone in on other parts of the world where the climate is uh, actually remarkably similar to the spot in question. And then the other, there's one other parameter that we sometimes find ourselves looking at. Like there's a lot of different things you can look at with climate. You can look at wind patterns, uh, so on and so forth. But the other one that, that tends to come up for tropics specifically is elevation because we run into issues where um, like coconuts tend to not produce above 2,000 feet, things like that. So you might also include an elevation parameter if you're looking in the tropics. Hmm. So in a nutshell, that's what a analog climate is. Another place in the world that's really very climatically similar to wherever you are. Yeah. Now, how have you used that in some of your design work? Would you give us some examples? Yeah. So, uh, let's see. By searching out analog climate information, we had a project in Northern California a few years back where we spent some time uh, researching the analog climates and looking all over the world to figure out uh, where are the places most like this location in Northern California? And uh, one of the analog climates that we found was the Khorasan province in Iran. Hmm. And it's pretty interesting how you can use this information because we were able to take that information. Okay, the Khorasan province is really similar to the place we're dealing with. And in that case, we were able to go and learn that the primary agricultural products of the Khorasan province were saffron and barberries. And so clearly those two items ended up on our species list to go into the plan. We also found another analog climate for that same project in Tajikistan. And uh, we did some more research on the native ecology there. And we found that there were places, but I mean, this is where almonds, pistachios, and pomegranates are from. And there were places in that country, in this region, uh, where 80% or something like that of the forest cover was comprised of those species. So clearly this climate, it's telling us that these species would be awesome there. And in addition to the actual like plant layer and the landscape layer and the food production and the things, we can also look at what kinds of building materials used in people's houses, uh, how they design their houses. Are the houses in the round? Are they domed? Are they made of wood? Are they made of stone? And some of that goes outside the realm of climate parameters. But generally people, if we look at traditional housing, uh, people build houses that are responsive to their climate. And you know, if if traditional peoples didn't build houses that were responsive to their climate, they probably didn't make it. So that gives us a really good example, something to play on. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was doing, um, <clears throat> I was doing my graduate work, I was studying heirloom fruit trees in Arizona, and part of what I did was track the movement of the popular fruit tree species from their original areas where they, uh, like you said, you know, almonds from Tajikistan, you know, so looking at peaches, for example, and looking at how did peaches get all the way to Arizona from China, right? And they traveled along the right. Silk Road, and they ended up becoming quite established on the Iranian plateau, right? Which is, you know, the uh, has a, a real analogous climate to the Colorado plateau in the four yeah. corners region. And so when I was, I was like, cause I would see these, you know, these old peach orchards on the, in Canyon de Chez and the Navajo Indian uh, nation. And those climates where you'd find the peaches in these walled canyons were actually very similar to uh, where you would find these walled paradise gardens on the Iranian plateau. So it was, it's really interesting to see how, when you, when you start looking at these climate analogs, how different species actually have these very similar environments in completely different parts of the world. Yeah. I think, you know, and another thing to keep in mind, it's not just the species, like that's awesome to find that kind of information really gives you some clues, but it sounds like you were also talking about canyons, right? Using specific canyons. And that's also, 
you know, that's not just species, that's also the horticultural techniques of the people in those areas, which is a whole other aspect of it, right? So this is, um, well, here, another example, we have a, a grower up here in the Pacific Northwest, actually in coastal British Columbia, uh, Bob and Verna Duncan, Fruit Trees and More Custom Propagation Nursery, and they specialize in growing subtropical stuff outdoors in coastal British Columbia. Wow. So they've got pomegranates, citrus, jujubes, pineapple guavas, all kinds of stuff like that. And it's through their microclimate enhancement techniques that they're able to grow that. And so mm-hmm. there was another project where uh, we were actually doing an analog climate assessment for a project in New Zealand. And we found, interestingly, that one of their analog climates was Victoria, British Columbia, which mm-hmm. is very close to Bob and Verna Duncan. And so these cultural techniques also made sense. So when you do analog climate research, it's like this mix of looking at science and economics, but also um, culture and why did people do the things they did? Why did you know? Why did people? Uh, why, why is the siesta a thing in certain parts of the world? It's like, well, it's really hot in the middle of the day, right? <laughs> so having some sort of, of operating system for how you get around and do your thing on a daily basis that, that mimics things that people have found to be a good idea in the past just makes sense. Yeah. Totally. So you're talking about, yeah, so you're talking about precipitation, temperature, elevation. Some other things that um, came to my mind when I was looking into this is uh, the proximity to the to a large body of water, right? Like yeah, whether you are sure. on like an oceanic or, you know, interior continental. Um, and then uh, you mentioned wind patterns and also also ocean currents, right? And we think about Absolutely. the yeah we think about the Gulf Stream we think about this warm warm current going from the Gulf of Mexico up the east coast of the U S and then going across the Atlantic and you know we have um, uh, the U K is at a, a much more northerly latitude than a lot of places that are actually have an analog climate because that warm ocean current right. So, yeah, so it seems like there's a lot of, real, you know, it's like the Earth is such a diverse place. How how much do you guys look at, at latitude as well um, playing into that? Oh, we look at it a ton. And the idea being um, a lot of those effects that might show up based on wind or ocean currents, they're going to show up within the realm of temperature, right? So if you're paying attention to temperature ranges, you'll find that information. But in terms of going out into the world and actually finding the analogs, it's a bit tricky, and I know people have showed me some good climate resources online a couple times. I don't have them off the top of my head, but uh, we don't have like software that can just bloop, just sort of churn out the analog climates when you punch in a, a location. But um, starting point would be latitude for one, right? If you're looking across the globe at the same latitude, you're, you're, you're going to be likely to find something that's close. And that goes for north and south latitude, right? So if we go to the southern hemisphere in the same latitude, we might find analog climates there as well. And then, just like you said, ocean currents, it gets modified, right? So if we look across at the part of the UK that would be an analog to the Pacific Northwest, uh, and we find, oh, it doesn't get as cold there, then we start going north, right? And start to look at some different locations going north. And other guides we have to help us with that are the... Uh, the Keppen climate classification system that gives you a real rough idea of some places you might want to start looking. Uh, you can use Holdrich life zones in a similar way, just to try and find where do these same sort of eco tones show up in various parts of the world. And, uh, and then looking at this conglomeration, I mean, it just requires a little bit of understanding about, you know, how the geography of the world works. And, you know, when we run into mountains, we also find, that's going to skew where the climates would occur. It pulls it away from just being strictly on the same latitude. If we look at elevation, right, we can find a very similar climate to, you know, parts of California if you go to the top of the mountain in Guatemala, right? Mm. So as we go more tropical, we can go up uh, and find, you know, you, there are people in Central America who grow apples, right? But yeah. They're growing them on the top of the mountain. Right. Now, have you have you gotten to the level in some of the projects you've worked on where you were actually like, okay, this particular valley here, you know, on this particular, like in Tajikistan, it's not just in, you know, Tajikistan, it's it's like this particular valley is analogous to the climate of a particular valley that, where you're working or something like that. Um, I don't know that we've 
necessarily have the, the tools to get that granular. Like we've gotten on a province level, right? Yeah. And, and that's been helpful. Or we've gotten uh, some data that points to a specific mountain range or a specific band. But um, it hasn't been so – like we also run into an issue where if you get too specific um, – how would I say this? The more specific you get, the more specific what you're looking for is, and the more specific what you find is, the less data there will be pointing to that specific point, right? Like there are definitely, we found analog climates for a project once in, I think it was the Sterling Range in Australia at a specific elevation. And there's just, you can't look up like, what do they grow at that elevation? That data's not, you know, that's not out there. I can't find that data. So um, I would also recommend this tool as sort of a, uh, I guess you could say a rough and dirty tool. That's why, you know, I look at precipitation, temperature, and seasonality as the primary things that, that I want to look at. You can compare those using a climatogram um, and find other places that match those three. The more other parameters you start looking for, the more specific your profile gets, but also it starts to rule out other places that may be relevant. And uh, what we want is, is sort of a, like, for me, it tends to be like a quick and dirty process of let's sort out some analog climates and then start doing the research to figure out what makes sense there. Yeah. Do you have any examples from the tropics of um, places where you found some species in another part of the world that you could introduce into a, the design of a project? Oh, yeah, let me think. We have, um, we did a project in the Peruvian Amazon a few years ago. And, well, even better, let's, let's take a project we did a few years ago in Costa Rica. So we were in Costa Rica doing a project, and this uh, this client we were working for, had land at several different elevations there was like a i'm not gonna i'm not gonna try to guess the numbers but they had one that was distinctly lowland tropics and they had one that was mid elevation and one that was high elevation tropics and so it was clear that like if you want to grow kale and parsley and things like that the high property is where you're doing that and if you want to grow more tropical stuff then the the lowest parcel is where you'd want to do that and even within that parcel we were looking at different parts of the land and saying, okay, well, here's a ridge coming down. Here's an area where the soils are da-da-da-da-da. And then there's this area right along a creek that comes through. And that area um, was distinctly the most similar to uh, Southeast Asia. Hmm. And so we were looking at the types of Southeast Asian fruits that were already being grown in Costa Rica. And... Uh, things like rambutans, uh, things like durians, so on and so forth. And if he wants to grow those, that was the place to do it. Hmm. So you're actually using it to possibly even bring in productive crops, food crops that are not even present in the current uh, environment, bringing them in from across the world because you can tell that they're going to do good because of the analogous climate conditions. Yeah, what I would say is... is we look at doing careful introductions and we want to make them in such a way that, um, that if we are going to introduce something, we give our client the best shot at it actually working. Right. Yeah. Like it's, I think with a lot of, with a lot of what we do in permaculture, if you think about it, we're doing a lot of novel systems. We're doing hybrids of modern technology and new varieties as well as traditional ancient ways of doing things. Right. And so, a lot of what we are creating, a lot of what shows up in our designs are novel and unique things that haven't been done this way before. And I think that's okay. It's it's based on research and it's based on experience. And the way I always frame it for our clients is um, I can't guarantee everything on this entire master plan is going to work exactly as planned. In fact, I would guess no master plan ever created okay. has ever worked exactly as planned. But uh, I, if we were doing it, this is what we would do. This will give you your best shot. So you know, the durians might all die at some point, but if you're going to try growing durians, this is the spot to do it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Oh, have, have you, you know, you live in Seattle. Have you located uh, analogs to Seattle? Um, close. I thought you were going to ask me if I can grow durians in Seattle. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't do that. Um, uh, let's see. So it's funny because for the one project we did in New Zealand where we found that Victoria, B.C., was a analog climate um, that was kind of perfect because everything else we researched was relevant to Victoria, BC, which is pretty much the same as where the Bullock's permaculture homestead is like yeah. 
20 miles away on Orcas Island. Right. And so we ended up, just, you know, by proxy doing this amazing um, bit of analog climate research for that location. So I've done it for Orcas yeah. by proxy, um, but I have not actually taken the time to do it for Seattle, which is a little different. And um, I suppose that's something to mention is if you start to look at urban areas, we have the urban heat island effect. So you're typically going to see a very different temperature regime. And I would say the most notable effects of that urban heat island effect for plants. Um, yes, it gets hotter during the day in the summer. But I think one of the most uh, important things uh, for a place like Seattle anyway, is that it doesn't get as cool as night night, right. which means, you know, having lived in both locations, Orcas Island, which is out in the Puget Sound, um, it's actually kind of a slog to grow eggplants, and you certainly can't do them outside. You have to mm -hmm. do them in a greenhouse. And here in Seattle, I just line them up in pots along the sidewalk, and away we go. Right. So, huh. so um, what seems like, you know, there's one one aspect is determining your current climate analog. And when I did some research into climate analogs, I found that. In, in the wider world, when people use the term climate analog, they're actually um, referring to a climate that is analogous to the one that yours will become with climate change. And, uh, you know, speaking here, you know, if I look back over the last year, we had, let's see, the wettest October on record. We had, we had two months that were the wettest months on record. Right now, this week, they're threatening the highest temperatures ever uh here in western oregon so you know obviously um we are entering a period of extreme climate fluctuation so how do you think that's going to affect climate analog research i mean are you still looking for places that are the same now or are you starting to look for places that your climate may become in the future i would say ideally yes you're looking at you know where is your climate headed, right? And uh, if you look at Dave Jackie's Edible Forest Gardens, you know, his he, he puts his take on the scale of permanence in there, and, and he has a whole method of doing analysis and assessment on a property using that scale of permanence. And one of the things that he lists in bold is not just your current climate, but uh, prediction of future climate in an area. And so I do think that's important to look at. It's important to think about. But um, I also think we want to keep in mind that um, that's just what it is. It's a projection, right? Yeah. And I think the given the complexity of how the world works and what's going to happen in the next 50 years on the ground, um, you know, the likelihood that any prediction you read today is going to be 100% accurate is... I don't know that that's the case. So it's a challenge to try and uh, use that information and plan towards it. And the other thing, if we think about using that information, um, like let's say the predictions say it's going to be five degrees warmer for your average low in the winter in 50 years. Well, that's great. That's, I mean, maybe it's not great from a climate perspective. That's great that you, that's great that we know that, right? However, it doesn't mean that you can start growing oranges yet, right? Yeah. It's, you kind of have to pair up what you're doing with the timing of those sorts of events. Now, one resource that I found really interesting to try and um, to try and assess that is uh, there's a project called the Forecasts Project. Have you seen that? Uh, I don't think so. So it is. Uh, let's see who put it together. I don't know who put it together. I haven't looked at it recently. I did a bunch of research on it a while back. But um, there's basically some people who've taken the climate change projections on a 50 and 100 year basis and they matched it up with range maps for native North American tree species. Hmm. And so you can pick any native North American tree species you want and you can go onto their site. And what it does is they have maps that will show you here's where the species currently exists. Here's where the species or here's where the habitat will be such based on our climate projections that it will be able to support that species in the future. Mm -hmm. and, and these maps show the, the overlap, like where will they, where do they exist now that they will be able to exist in the future. And for example, with Douglas fir, there's a 68% overlap between mm -hmm. where 
the habitat supports dug firs right now and where it will in the future. It shows that the maps also show places where Douglas firs, like the habitat conditions will support Douglas firs in the future that they don't currently. And it shows places where the habitat will no longer support Douglas firs according to their projections. And so I think it's particularly telling when you look at these maps to see only a 68% overlap if yeah. we look 50 to 100 years in the future. And if we look at other species, um, let's see, the sugar maple, that one only has about 47% overlap with where the range currently is. Most of the sugar maple, like a lot of the southern sugar maples, um, they're moving north, or the climate appropriateness is moving north. So if we look at places like Iowa, Missouri, Arkansas, where we currently have sugar maples, those are places where we're not going to see them in the future, but we're going to see a lot more sugar maples up in uh, various parts of Canada. Wow. And so that's only a 47% overlap. If we look at black walnut, it's 31%. Whoa. If you look at honey locust, it's 27%. Wow. You look at pawpaws, it's 6% overlap. Whoa. So what's really interesting to me is that says if we want to have pawpaws in the future, it's not going to be where pawpaws are now. So we need to really be, you know, who was it? David Holmgren. I think he talks a fair amount about the idea of ecosynthesis, mm. right? This idea that over time ecosystems will uh, evolve to account for a new species being present. You know what I mean? The, the idea that often it doesn't happen in a human time scale, right? It's not like in the next four years, everything will adapt and something will learn to eat species X and it will become integrated. But right. on a bigger time scale, it does. And I think what we're looking at is a scenario in the future where if we want to have pawpaws, we need to be thinking along these ecosynthesis lines, right? right? We need to, and in fact, we can actually be an active entity in moving these plants to where they're going to thrive in the future. Right. Now, I, I've seen some... Uh information on the Bullock homestead and how they're really uh, a plant reservoir for species that are going to be able to go in different different climatic directions. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, some of the species assemblages there? And is, is that part of the thought process of those plantings? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I was going to say in terms of the, the idea of predicting. We can try to predict. And at the end of the day, what do you do with that information, right? How do we how do we actually create the, the kinds of landscapes that will provide for our needs and also be ecologically functional and, and, you know, support the needs of other species? It's not, you know, this isn't, how do I say it? This isn't engineering. You know, there's not an answer. And, and so we, we, we have to be thinking flexibly, right? We have to be looking at different ways to do things. And I think at the Bullocks what we do is we just assume that things will be different in the future. And so we do what we call planting our climatic edges, right? Mm. Let's say it gets radically colder for some reason. Um, at the Bullock's Permaculture Homestead, we have an apple variety that was bred, I believe, in Saskatchewan. Mm. Uh, it's called the Hare 20. And Hare 20 apples are, they can, I believe, they can grow to zone two or three. Wow. So interior Alaska is, yeah. is where this apple was, was bred to perform. And so we have that variety. We don't have 80 trees of that variety, but we have one branch on one tree. So that genetics is present. Right. And if we ever need it, we can utilize it. We can pull that, you know, we can graft it. We can change other apples over. But maybe in, then, in a normal year, it might not get enough chill hours to produce fruit. Um, well, on Orcas Island, we never have any problem with chill okay. hours. I refer to it. But it's the land that heat forgot is how I think of it. But, um it does produce, it's just, you know, there are other apples, there are maybe better apples, but when it comes down to, hey, guess what, we need apples that will perform in this climate, we've got one. Yeah. And on the other end of that spectrum, we have, uh, oh, there's probably somewhere in the ballpark of 30 loquat trees planted across the property up on Orcas. And loquats are something that is seldom planted, or that are seldom planted here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, they tend to not produce their fruit here. They tend to produce only irregularly when they do. And um, up on Orcas, we planted loquats uh, in several locations because we figure if our winters start to get warmer, if we start to have uh, more amenable conditions, these might start to produce. Hmm. And um, in addition, in the meantime, 
the the leaf is used as a medicinal. It's a nice shade tree. It's a beautiful evergreen, so it's got great ornamental characteristics, so on and so forth. And the most interesting part of that, in my opinion, is I believe, oh gosh, it was probably five or six years ago now. I don't know. Time flies, but uh, we had a loquat set fruit. Oh wow! And since that one started to set fruit, and this was after it had been in the ground for probably twenty five or thirty years, wow. uh, it started setting fruit. And it has set fruit every year since. So we now have a local, at least one local. We actually have several loquats on the property that have started. And um, I'm not guaranteeing that is due to climate change. Uh, that could have something to do with the morphology of the tree, this and that. But we're keeping seeds from that one. And we are now starting to breed. Like It's like the same thing with breeding vegetables, right? We're just moving through generations of loquats, yeah. albeit slowly, uh, with the idea that we want to have uh, loquats that are adapted to the conditions in the Pacific Northwest. And you know what? If the climate change program moves to meet us halfway, that's just that much quicker that we're going to be eating loquats hand over fist. So. Right. so it sounds like diversity, maximum diversity, and having uh, at least uh, representatives of different varieties and species present in the permaculture system is really the actual tangible response to the unknowns of climate change was that kind of do you feel that absolutely and and you have to balance that too right i think unless your your passion is being a collector which interestingly that is the passion of the bullocks they are collectors they are experimenters that is their primary function um for most of our clients i recommend that when you think about your landscape you plant 80 percent sherbets and 20 percent experimental stuff so it's not like we're taking up our whole landscape or, or the precious few spots we have in our urban yard with boquats and hair 20 apples yeah. and weird weird fringe stuff uh-huh. uh it's more like no no put 80 percent stuff that that is super reliable and produces every year like clockwork and but make sure you dedicate some percentage of your landscape to the more experimental stuff uh, because what we found is in many many years those things that, uh, you know, when we have a bad year for all of the, the main staples, the normal stuff, there's always something else that kicks in. It happened with a, there was a, what was it? A plum cot that we've had on the farm for 20 years, never produced anything. And then a few years ago, we had a real bad fruit set on everything else. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, the plum cot's loaded. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Diversity is resilience, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to go back a little bit um, to this this 68% Doug fir overlap because when we think about that other third, what's going to happen to that other 32%? You know, I um, I moved here from Arizona. Are you on that website? Because it sounded like you were actually typing up. I don't know if you were just reciting those numbers off from memory or if you're looking at it <laughs> because I'm, I'm really curious about the Ponderosa pine tree. Uh, I can look at that one. The, so, Doug, I happen to have these pulled into a slideshow, okay. so they're handy for me to access. Yeah. But Ponderosa Pine, that is Pinus... Pinus Ponderosa. Rosa. Yeah. yeah. I'm getting there. Well, they have several different models, and it takes a little bit of research. Oh, my gosh. They have... Uh, so, I'd have to do more research yeah. to give you any sort of accurate <clears throat> answer, because they have six screens worth of specific very you know varietals yeah. 10 different halo types or uh-huh. haplotypes <laughs> and so on and so right. i can't give you a straight answer on oh my well, gosh well, there's so many ponderous resources i'll tell you why i was asking that is because you know between the years when i, I lived in arizona from uh 1994 to 2008 and um between 2002 and 2005 was the the driest period that we had in 1,400 years, right? And they could tell that by um, doing tree ring data, um, core samples and such. And I watched around, you know, 2004, 2005, I watched the ponderosa pine starting to die in mass, right? And um, I mean, like, you know, you'd look up at the hill and, and, and 60%, you know, 70% of the, of the mountainside would be uh, dead, you know, would be dead trees. Um, you know, it was the beetle, it was the bark beetle, but the bark beetle was only able to actually get into the trees because of drought and because of the lack of sap. And a friend of mine who was working the, for the Forest Service uh, at the time said, hey, it's not that we're losing all the ponderosa pine trees here, we're just transitioning to a high desert chaparral ecosystem. 
right? And so right. suddenly we had this tinder for fire, right, of, of, of massive size. Right around that time, the, the Rodeo Chedesky fire uh, was the largest fire in Arizona history, and that was I don't remember how big it was. It was like hundreds of square miles and these two fires combined and it just showed the power when suddenly you combine massive tree die off with wildfire. And so that, you know, now I live in the Doug fir zone. And so when I think of the 32% of the Douglas fir zone that is not going to still be Douglas fir habitat into the future, uh, that gets kind of scary. And it seems like, on, on the permaculture level of disaster assessment, it seems like um, suddenly, you know, that's a really useful tool there as well. Yeah, and I mean, if you're going to be reforesting an area, if you're watching, because I think, um, let's see, down in your neck of the woods, do you have Swiss needle cast showing up and laminated root rot and some of that sort of stuff? Um, on the fir trees? I'm not I'm not yeah. totally sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, I've noticed that in other parts of sort of coastal Oregon. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I mean, I think that creates an interesting dynamic as well, where you're looking at, like you said, trees being weakened due to changing climatic conditions, which allows a pest to get in and do its job. And so we really are, you know, I think at the core, there is sort of a an understandable discomfort with change, right? Especially changes at a scale way larger than yourself. But I think we're looking at a future where... Um, even with the best of climate change projections, as in best of meaning we do all these wonderful things and we sign all these treaties and we cut emissions and so on and so forth, even with the best of predictions, there's going to be change and we're going to see ecosystems shift, right? And I think our job these days is to be responsive to those shifts, right? We can we have to work on two fronts at once, right? We want to work at doing what we can to try and minimize those shifts from happening. But simultaneously, we also need to be working on the resilience end and preparing for them in case that doesn't work, right? In case it does make radical shifts. Because this whole idea of things changing is is going to happen in a big way. Like Doug Bullock mentioned this to me once, and it really, uh, it really shifted a perspective for me. But if you think about uh, our urban places all over the world, right? And if you think about nurseries and you think about plants that that come from other places that have already been moved around that are already just part of the landscaping trade that are completely benign right well are they continue are they going to continue to be completely benign when we see the temperature shift or when we see it get drier or when we see it get warmer right like the the common landscape plants that are located throughout the world all around us that have never been problematic before could within any one year period become a rampant species, right? Mm-hmm. So this idea of ecosynthesis, this idea of plants moving around and doing their thing, that's not going to change. That's going to happen. So the question becomes, how do we set up systems that are responsive when it does? How can we respond to those kinds of changes that are happening? Yeah. And I think, I mean, talking about, <clears throat> I'd love to hear more about ecosynthesis. I know um, I heard in an interview with David Holmgren, I, I believe he said something like 70% of the landmass of the earth now is now in novel ecosystems, which is combinations of plants that had never previously existed before. I don't know if that's an exaggerated number or not, but I don't know if you want <clears throat> to talk a little bit about more about novel ecosystems and, and ecosynthesis and, you know, where even without our continued introduction and moving around of plant species, what, what's just been going on? Where's it going all on its own at this point? Yeah, it's been a while since I've done that end of the research. Um, I don't have any specific examples that I can mm-hmm. pull up off the top of my head to share with you. But um, yeah, I mean, this idea that there there are introduced species all over the world that are filling niches, that are um, stepping in to, to play a role that may not be happening in the ecosystem. I mean, that's really where, uh, I mean, if you think about rampant species, that's where they tend to, to thrive is where where they've found a niche and nothing else is occupying that niche, they're kind of like, all right, well, game on. And uh, the way ecosynthesis works is where they become not a rampant component, but a 
uh, another member of the system, right? It's kind of like a pendulum. The minute you introduce something like that or the minute something like that comes in on its own or however it gets there, it's like sending a pendulum swinging, which then goes flying around and everything's all wacky in that ecosystem for a time, but eventually it comes back to center. And in, in an ecosystem, what that means is some pest discovers that it likes to eat it or another plant uh, adapts and finds a way to cope with with coexisting with it or competing with it, right? So there's a bunch of different ways that that can play out. And ecosystems are so complex, so much more complex than we can fully understand that those kinds of balancing uh, effects are happening all the time, right? Like what if we look at this from like geologic timescales, right? Let's say we lose a pile of Douglas firs in this area. And let's say in your area, um, 15 Douglas fir trees survive, right? Yeah. And those clearly have something different either they got lucky or there was something different genetically that enabled them to survive and so this could be a bottlenecking of douglas fir genetics which then results in re-expansion of the douglas fir species somewhere down the road Hmm. right but that is not in you or i's human time scale that's on a geologic time scale so i think that idea of um of geologic time scales and, and starting to think uh starting to think like a whole ecosystem or starting to think like like a like an epoch rather than just like an individual person uh that changes how you think about things yeah it's interesting there's an interesting example um there's a guy terry mock who i had the fortune of uh, having a class of mine at one point um he's down in the southern oregon coast and his whole thing is um getting the genetics getting collecting seed and and uh taking cuttings from the biggest uh coastal redwoods and uh sequoia um you know sierra sequoia redwoods uh and propagating the giant of the giant trees and then spreading them to what i don't remember when was their original range went you know more north but he's been basically spreading these trees and planting them in all different locations to serve as seed trees for um future climatic conditions on the on the epoch scale but still as a person he's kind of pushing this along and getting the the giant spread around so i thought that was kind of a a interesting human response there Um, yeah absolutely and doug bullock uh, out at the bullocks i've heard him say many times the idea that you know Today, there, you know, for right or for wrong, there are still airplanes flying around and UPS package delivery services. And at some point, Amazon will send a drone and it will drop a packet of seeds at your doorstep if you want, right? We have this happening whether we like it or not. So the idea is um, get the genetics to your site, get the genetics present now, and then you have them for the future, right? And if we think about, you know, how unique this time in history is... I think it's really telling because Doug often talks about if you, you know if you look back in history, who on planet Earth could acquire seeds or plants from another continent? Like that was Queen Victoria. That was who that power was reserved for, right? Queen Victoria could send explorers and fund big missions, and they'd go off to China, or they'd go off here and there, and they'd bring back Queen Victoria's favorite fruit, or they'd bring back this interesting plant or whatever it was. Today, we all have the power of Queen Victoria and most people can click a link on Amazon or they can order a plant. And so the idea is, you know, if we're considering a future where that kind of, you know, use of our energy resources might not be happening, then the idea is let's get the genetics to where we need them today. So they're at least represented and we can draw upon them when we need them in the future. Yeah. Nice. And and then, you know, some of the inadvertent uh, rampancy that's happened, like, you know, when you were talking earlier, um, I was thinking about just Himalayan blackberry, right? And how it's considered, well, it was, you know, introduced as something that could provide a alternative income source to farmers. It was so hardy, all the blackberries, and then, of course, it got loose, and it's just considered a really uh, rampant, invasive species here. And at the same time, another introduced species, the uh, European honeybee, that's the main nectar source. That's where the money is made, so to speak, from beekeepers, and the honey is really packed away, is that summer bloom 
of the Himalayan blackberry. So it's like these two different introduced species suddenly have this um, this real uh, symbiotic relationship. Um, you know, one offering pollination, the other offering nectar, and it creates. I mean, you know, there's. I think of the European honeybee as a good thing. I guess you know part of that is selfish, but you know that's a species that I harvest honey from and I really you know benefit from. So it's just interesting when you when you do get these different species together and suddenly there are these relationships and these benefits and these yields that nobody really thought of. You know that when when the when the Himalayan blackberries introduced that this was going to be the foundation of the honey yield, you know, in the Willamette Valley or even maybe in the whole Pacific Northwest. So, yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, to me, that seems kind of like a, well, part of the question that comes up then is what's the alternative, right? Like the European honeybee is not from here, right? It's here. What, you know, what, what are we going to do about it? Right. And the same thing, you, you know, you hear about earthworms all the time and how they're cashing in a lot of carbon and they're moving through forest soils and so on and so forth. My question for that is, well, what's the alternative? Like, how are you going to eliminate all the earthworms? Right. How are you going to eliminate the honeybees? How are you going to eliminate the, the Himalayan blackberry? How, how, what is the proposal for eliminating that species? I think really at this point, unless we're down to just like go at it hardcore on the chemicals or all of us quit our jobs and just start pulling, um, <laughs> It's here, right? It's here to stay. And so I think we're looking more at the ecosynthesis model on some of those species than we are on the other end of the spectrum. And now, all that said, um, there's also something for being a pain, right? Like, there are definitely plants that, that are not from here that have shown up here that uh, make life more difficult for us, right, at a baseline level. I think about morning glory in the yeah. garden I have outside that prevents me from growing anything shorter than three feet yeah. in one of my gardens. It's yeah. just like cause I, that morning glory just keeps coming back, and I just haven't had the time or resources to go about a stringent elimination program. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's uh, it's filling ecological roles. It's finding a niche, but it's not really a beneficial species. So when it comes right down to it, and when we think about introductions, that's why earlier I said when we do introductions, we want to be doing careful introductions, right? We don't. Our, our goal isn't to introduce the next big pain in the butt, right? That's not exactly what we're aiming at. And there's a lot of things that if you introduce them and you notice them going rampant, that means it's going to make a lot more work for you, and it's going to make a lot more work for your neighbors and you know, don't don't be that person. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, what, what is but what is your answer to the the inevitable people right now that are cringing listening to this um, about you know introducing any non-native species and promoting non-native species at all? I mean, what how how do you respond to people that really are native purists? Um. Holy cow! That was a big question. That's <laughs> like its own podcast, my man. I know. I know. Um, <laughs> The, uh, oh, there's so many, there's so many points to that discussion. And, you know, I, I suppose I would, it's, it's such an emotionally triggering thing that it's hard to have like a response. Right. And I think step one is meeting people where they're at. And and so I would probably be acknowledging that there are some species, uh, in various parts of the world that right now are causing some significant harm, right. In terms of. Uh, whether you look at economics and livelihoods or whether you look at simplifying some of our ecosystems, that sort of thing. But at the same time, I think we need to look at a few different factors. And those factors go uh, like this. What's the role of disturbance in the establishment of those non-native species, right? And who's causing that disturbance? And it seems like just going after the species is a radically different approach and in my opinion far less effective than going after the root of the problem so it's kind of like if you don't want a bunch of scotch broom all over the place quit cutting down the forests quit putting in new developments quit tilling that farm field so on and so forth right yeah if we look at um you know then the question that comes up is okay so if if one it has a target goal of some form of native purity to what degree are they willing to push forward that agenda? Are you willing to put, um, you know, massive quantities of human hours into sort of unending tasks of pulling and, and 
pulling, well, I mean, physical removal of species. Uh, if so, I think that's that's fine in a in a specific context. Like if you were trying, like here, I worked at one point on a national monument out east, and uh, we did a lot of non-native species removal because the goal of the monument was to try and have the ecosystem that was there represent the ecosystem that was there when the historical event that caused it to become a monument happened. Mm-hmm. And so that makes sense. Or if you want an example, uh, I think that all makes sense. But if you're thinking that we're going to use human labor to remove all the blackberries in the Pacific Northwest, well, I think that that human labor could be put to much better use. And then the alternative to human labor, as is often the case, is uh, chemicals. And so to what degree is one willing to start hosing things down with chemicals in order to achieve this state of, of purity? Right. Yeah. And that to me is a, a huge, huge part of uh, where my, my perspective shifts and where I have more of a, well, let's figure out how to work around it because it's not going anywhere because I would not be willing to start hosing things down with chemicals. Yeah. Whether, you know, I'm not interested in the idea of, you know, dumping chemicals into the Puget Sound to eliminate a pest for the oyster industry. I'm not interested in dumping chemicals into wetland areas to eliminate, uh, read canary grass yeah. there's just it that's that's a lot that's a fairly hard line for me yeah and I, I think there's a real difference between um i mean I, I can't really think of great examples of uh exotic invasive species that establish themselves in really intact native ecosystems maybe you can but it's kind of like what you were saying is blaming the species is like uh blaming the messenger and typically the the actual cause is human disturbance. Can you think of, of, of a exotic invasive species that really comes in and finds a niche and takes over an existing intact ecosystem and causes its, uh, you know, a downfall? Um, I don't know that I'm going to have a hard example for you right now, but I do believe that it happens. I just believe it is by far the the lesser yeah. the lesser scenario right like um if you think about it if there was if there hasn't been anything that has evolved to fill a certain gap here in north america and then something from asia comes in and finds that it has a completely new unseen before survival strategy that could get established and the most difficult ones are typically going to be the shade tolerant ones the ones that come yeah. up in shade yeah. right kudzu yeah. like holy smokes But, um, and I would say the most likely place where those kinds of impacts are going to occur, uh, are, is a, they they are places where I think the invasive species, uh, can have a major, major impact. And that's when we start to look at islands, right? Right. People, places where there has been, uh, long histories of very unique vegetation, very unique animal and plant species developing without certain ecological pressures. And then, you know, I mean, you can look at Hawaii for a great case study on how invasive species can modify an entire ecosystem. For a project we did there, we were looking at a 20-acre site, and um, on that entire 20 acres, I only found one native species, wow. which I later realized that I had misidentified, and it was actually just another invasive. Oh, so, geez. yeah. you know, those are fragile ecosystems. They're fragile places, and right. so it's a very different approach for those kinds of locations. Yeah. Well, it's interesting what you were saying before about how you may have species, exotic species that have basically just been sort of sitting there until the climate reaches some certain level of change. And then they might suddenly find themselves in a niche to proliferate. Or, you know, you look at the 32% of the Douglas fir forest that is not in the overlap zone that you're talking about. That's, that's supposed to go away and, what species are going to be waiting in the wing, wings to fill those niches? So. Yeah, and you know, I think another point that's really important to to mention here too is I think in you know as people involved in ecological work, I think it's really important that we encourage people to make some really important distinctions. Right, native versus exotic is a very different distinguisher than invasive versus benign, or yeah. or as Dave Jackie would call them. Uh, what does he refer to invasive species as? He has a whole different term he uses, but um, opportunistic is how he refers mm. to them. So I think that's those are two different you know axes that we can look at, right? And they aren't the same. 
native versus exotic, there's plenty of exotic species that aren't causing harm. They aren't spreading. They aren't, you know, we, we have some, we have, you know, I've seen a species growing that is on the invasive species list, but literally in the area where it's growing has failed to make seeds 20 years in a row. Hmm. So clearly not an invasive there. Right. Yeah. And so it's this idea of, you know, paying attention to the ecology, paying attention. It's, it comes back to reading the landscape, right? What is the landscape telling you about what's going on in a particular ecosystem or how things are responding? And, and then you get to make choices based on that information. Yeah. So for people that are, that are listening and they're, they're you know, thinking about the climate analogs and thinking about bringing in a diversity of species in order to adapt to different climate change scenarios and thinking about what are the existing species that are already there, how are they going to adapt um, to a, a change in climate? Um, you know, and you, you said that it was, it was very difficult to actually, like, you know, you know, how many of the climate projections that we have are actually going to be the way it is in, in 50 years do you have any advice for people about if they are projecting what the future climate is going to be like, like what, what parameters would they be looking at? Or, you know, I don't know if you've thought about that at all. Um, well, I mean, I think using tools like this forecasts project, these maps of tree species kind of gives you an idea, right? If we look at what is, you know, what is our habitat going to be opening up to, in the future and we can start to think about those things and their relatives, right? Because just like analog climates, we also have analog species, right? Like here in Western Washington, we have shore pines, which are native, right? Mm -hmm. And they grow and thrive in certain, certain types of soils, certain locations here. And um, they fill a very similar niche to what the Italian stone pine fills in its native habitat, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we do ecological mimicry? How do we, you know, because that's going to provide a larger panorama of the same environmental services for native species that have counted on the stone pine. It's just, uh, I, I like to think of it as horticultural editing, right? We're going to pick uh, an analog species that's going to, you know, kick up the functionality of that and provide a little bit more for us. And that is one of the pathways to how we can have um, both have our needs met for food and that sort of thing while still. Uh, allowing a lot of ecological function to happen. We mimic the ecosystems that we're in. So I think that's a big a big part of it, right? We're doing an ecological design process, not just slapping in species willy-nilly. We're trying to think about niche. We're trying to think about these concepts when we when we plan. Yeah. And then also when you're making the introductions, you know, it, what I like is, is this approach, and I can't remember if it was Dave Jackie or if it was someone else that I've heard sort of expose this, but it's the idea that, you can get the job done with a native species that kicks butt. Just do that. Like, if you live in the Midwest, grow a bunch of American persimmons. Sounds awesome to me, mm -hmm. right? You live in the Midwest, hey, black walnuts, killer. Right. Grow them, right? They do really well. They don't, they don't, you know, it's not like you have to baby them. They're adapted as well as can possibly be for at least the current climatic conditions. If you can't, can you find something that's close, similar from a nearby area? from a climatic zone that is going to be more like you in the future. And if you can't, uh, within that context, then, you know, it's this like expanding circle of going further and further afield. Right. Yeah. It's, it seems like the really tricky thing when I just look at my, my time in Oregon over the last nine years, I've seen the coldest snap since 1973. I saw, you know, 25 inches above average rainfall, you know, this last rainy season. I've seen, you know, record heat days. It just seems like it's every single direction that the, that the extremes are coming. So, you know, it's like, oh, do you get species for a warmer climate? Oh, but how tolerant are they to the 50-year cold snap, you know? Do you get species, right. you know, for, oh, for a drier climate? Well, how tolerant are they for 25 inches extra of rain? You know, I saw a lot of stuff die this spring that just, it just was just too wet for it. So. Right. Well, I think that's something important for people to keep in mind too. And um, by no means should this be misconstrued as any sort of climate change denial or anything, but looking at, at single events that are happening, um, those are data points. Those are not like, like I hear people occasionally say like, Oh my God, it's hot. Climate change, climate change. And I'm like, well, one data point is not what we refer to when we're talking about climate change. We are talking about trends over time. And realistically, we, we've barely got, you know, data to provide any sort of 
longitudinal idea of what climate change is happening in reality. And so um, just because it was particularly rainy in a particular month or it was cold in a particular month, it's interesting to talk to um, to old timers because they will often tell you like, oh yeah, something like this happened back in bot six or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and you start to hear about these events that may not be, you know, since the Western regional climate data center started collecting data. And, yeah. and so we start to look at a broader panorama of history when we talk to elders. And, and sometimes the, the things that seem really extreme from within our lifetimes aren't extreme. If you go back two or three lifetimes, they just don't occur that often. Right. right? So I think the idea that the take home message here is we can't just look at one event and say that that is because of or that is due to climate change. We have to start collecting data and look at the trends over time. So if we start to look at the last 10 years, 15 years, uh, when the USDA modified their um, their hardiness zone maps, I think that happened in 2006, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, yeah. then you saw a shift. And I think that was a, a reasonable volume of data to, to make those assumptions on. So. Yeah. Well, I guess you also have to have a government that wants to collect the data and doesn't go any race at all, too, right? Right. Well, in that case, if I'm not mistaken, the reason that the USDA finally changed those uh, those those maps was because the Arbor Day Foundation got a hold of their data and they published new USDA hardiness, or then not USDA, because it was Arbor Day Foundation hardiness maps, huh. um, which just at that point made the USDA look foolish. So the USDA said, okay, fine, we'll do it. Fine. <laughs> this actually has happened, right? It's like, yeah. well, I guess if, if we're going to become non-relevant, we, we can't have that. So, Yeah. Huh. Wow. Well, my my head is definitely spinning because, you know, one of the things that I'm really trying to just wrap my mind, wrap my life around is what's the most effective thing that we can be doing now to, you know, well, prepare for what is actually happening and also just prepare for the future in uh, setting up a human survival, just setting us up, setting us, our future generations up for survival, you know, based on whatever these changes are going to be. So, you know, I'm always just trying to figure out like what, what is going to happen? I mean, like nobody knows what's going to happen, of course, but you know, we, we, we still have guesses and projections that we based our lives and actions on. So thank you very much for uh, helping to clear some things up for me. And, and you also, you, you provided a lot of um, resources in this. You talked about the nursery down, uh, you know, that's growing the subtropical plants in Washington. And you talked about British the... British Columbia. They're in British Columbia. Oh, British Columbia. Sorry. You talked about the Copen, the Copen Geiger climate classification system, uh, you talked about a bunch of stuff. And when I go back through this podcast, um, I am going to get the links for all those different things you mentioned, and I'm going to put them in the show notes so people can access um, directly the, some of the things that you referred to. So Radical. Sounds yeah. great. So last thing, what, what, what books are you reading lately, Dave? Um, well, seeing as I'm looking at a lot of eco-village education center development stuff, that's the vein that all of that has been in. My, my normal fare of agroforestry and science and plant books has been, has been put on the shelf. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, been a lot of, of the more human end of things, which is really fascinating because, you know, you were mentioning uh, here as, as a wrap-up point that the, you know, what we're looking at as we go down the road here is how do, we, how do we actually respond to all these different things that are going on? What is the most effective, I think, is the term you used. And for me, one of those things that falls onto that, that uh, most effective list is education and figuring out how to work with people. A friend of mine, Michael Becker, he once said something I thought was really brilliant. He said, you know, the idea that today, if we stop all new future discoveries and developments about technology and plant species and growing techniques and agriculture and soil fertility management, if we just had what we knew today and moved forward with that, we can probably create a sustainable life on planet Earth. Yeah. The biggest obstacle we have to overcome is figuring out how to get along with one another, yeah. figuring out how to work together and all those sorts of things. And so uh, whether it be related to climate change or resilience building or whether it be um, how to share the tractor without getting in a fight or whatever it is, mm -hmm. I think that really is the cutting edge. And so in terms of what's one of the most effective things you can do from my perspective, it is 
create models that work and then share them with people. Nice. That's kind of the, the phase we're in now. It's not just talking about permaculture theory. And it's not just looking at models that may be from, you know, centuries ago. Let's see what we can do with this idea of ecosynthesis and creating models today. So in that regard, I've been reading all kinds of books about um, successful education startups, about uh, how, you know, governance systems. Mm-hmm. I read We the People, which is a book about uh, sociocracy just recently, mm-hmm. Creating a Life Together by Diana Leaf Christian, which is all about founding eco-villages, I've been reading about co-housing, uh, so on and so forth. So. Well, hey, thank you so much, Dave. This has been really fascinating for me personally, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. I'll talk to you again soon. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millicent, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.